This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. This week, join me as I continue my discussion with Elaine Taylor-Klaus, the founder of Impact Parents and author of the book Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids. In the previous show, we discussed girls with inattentive ADHD and autism as co-occurring diagnoses. We discussed the challenges involved in making an accurate diagnosis and the impact of these conditions on the girl. Today, we move into discussing parent coaching, teaching the skills your child will need in order to become the CEO in charge of regulating their attention, emotions, and use of time. You can do it with support from podcasts like this one, from Elaine's book, and her website as well, impactparents.com. Join us as we continue. You know, one girl who I think she's now 14, uh, and I had always thought I'd probably seen her for five years with her ADHD as each of her parents and her older sister also have, um, that she was emotionally two, even three years behind. She was acting more like an 11-year-old, 10, 11-year-old, instead of a 14-year-old, somewhat childish behavior sometimes, but also would totally lose it if I ask, how are things going last month? How do I know what happened last month? And run out of the room. And this is a video visit, so she was home, could run out of the room. And parents had this older sister to compare to and thought, this is more than ADHD. Mm-hmm. This younger one is not maturing emotionally as much. Um, she's much more rigid and tends to blow up about things. So they could see it in that comparison. You know, the other thing I'm noticing in your comparison that I've seen in my research has been that tendency to run. Um, I, I call these kids wanderers, the girls especially. Um, they may wander out of a classroom or they may leave, they may not run away from home but, but take off running because they just can't be with the intensity of whatever's happening. Yes. Um, I have one kid who, you know, literally walked home a mile or two from school, just walked out of a classroom and walked home one day, <laughs> you know. Uh, another who walked out of camp, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and that is not an uncommon response. And I, I can't speak to whether it's happening in boys. I just see it happening a lot in the girls. Um, and I think it's they hit a saturation point, and the way they deal with it until the parents and the school work together to come up with a, you know, a safety plan for them. The way they deal with their saturation is to take off. And it's actually a coping technique. Yeah, it's it's unsafe. I'm not having to deal with this 
whole bunch of different feelings and anxiety, and I, I don't know what to do with those feelings. And I think that's the, as you get to adolescence, they, they have really intense feelings, but they don't know what to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. So that gets them more anxiety, or they act that one way or another. One of the uh, the things, looking at the intensity and the the value, maybe particularly with girls in early teens and the social relationships and having friends, and you have best friends, groups of friends, that those are also intense situations and experienced with emotional intensity. These girls ignored me. I can't eat lunch with them. They'll get up and walk away or something like that. Or a parent will say she will make a couple friends and then it seems like three months later they aren't friends anymore. So that not yeah. being able to to deal with that and that tends to show up more in girls. And part of it is I think girls learn to mask socially better because social dynamics are are higher are higher value for young girls than they are for boys. Yes. Yeah, we expect it more of girls. And so they are called upon to mask earlier and younger and more effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's not until they hit a certain critical point where, where girls are functioning more independently of, of adults and they're starting to respond to the outer world that a lot of these kids hit that point where, like, okay, I can't keep up anymore. I can't mask anymore. I can't pretend to know what they're talking about anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas they often can when they're five and six. They can't anymore when they're nine and ten. And so that's when we see that shift starting to happen as well. Yeah, some girls have sports and things that can divert them. I think, boys, it may be more likely they have the team sports and there's a camaraderie. There's some of that with girls, but even then they don't they may connect on the field and play, but then mm-hmm. other than the team play, they aren't as socially connected. True, and and very often one of the other indicators to look for, and again, I'm, I've been looking a lot lately at how do we help providers begin to recognize these very complex kids. Mm-hmm. If the parent has to be the coach in order for the kid to be able to function in the sport or the Girl Scouts or whatever, yeah. <laughs> that's usually a clue. Not if the parent wants to be the coach, but if the parent really feels like the only way their kid's going to be able to participate is if they, the parent takes the leadership role. That's mm-hmm. a great sign that you've got a very complex kid. Yeah, and one could say all kids are complex that's true, and developmental stages get mixed. There are parts of one stage and overlap into the next stage. Um, mm-hmm. These kids definitely have that added layer of complexity. And maybe, uh, hey, how much do you struggle? <laughs> um, rating is, is uh, for parents as far as is this a, just a real slog trying to deal with kids and certainly parents of children identified on the spectrum hyperactive ADD can say yeah Mm -hmm. this is a real challenge 
all the time, every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the parents, if you, if you listen as a provider, if you if you think to ask as a provider, parents see parents have come to this with a lot of shame and guilt and and their own self judgment, and they feel like if they were just better parents, they would yeah. know how to handle this. And so they don't realize that there's really something difficult and different going on that they wouldn't normally typically know how to handle, and that doesn't fall into the realm of, of kind of typical behaviors. You know, the reason I wrote The Essential Guide was because I wanted to write a parenting book for kids who aren't, a typical parenting book for kids who aren't so typical. Mm-hmm. Because I was a parent of, a, of complex kids, multiple issues, and I would read the parenting books and try to do what they said, and it didn't work. And yeah. then I felt terrible, and I felt like I must that my either my kids must be really bad, or I must be really bad. And it wasn't until I understood that I needed to change my paradigm, and I needed to approach how I was parenting them differently because they're wired differently. That's what changed mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. But we have to give parents permission to do that, and we have to ask parents questions. We have to ask parents, you know, is your kid sleeping in their own bed or in their own room? You know, or mm-hmm. is your kid atta- oh, disproportionately attached to you and unable to function with other adults? Like those are some of the subtle signs that I'm beginning to see, again, particularly in girls, that begin to give us an indication that there may be something else going on besides just a simple single diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example perhaps of the um, grab onto a diagnosis. Oh, she can't function without you. It must be separation anxiety. Right. Or school anxiety. And so you do all the types of maneuvers. Usually there isn't a medication for those things. But that's not going to get at the what's the cause of that anxiety and the fact that this is all the time. It's not just going to school, but... Um, going to a club, being on a sports team, don't want the parent to leave. Right. Um, Well, and and the piece, and something I want to highlight with what you're saying is, is, you know, one of the things we don't yet know about, particularly about the autism spectrum, is, you know, is, is there a coexisting anxiety? Is the anxiety causative? Is it responsive? You know, I often say about ADHD, if you can't get yourself to do what the world expects you to do, that's going to make you anxious. And over mm-hmm. time, if you don't manage that, it's going to make you depressed. And I think the same is true for, for autism. If you don't fit in the way the world expects you to fit in, that's going to make you anxious. Yes. Yeah, you- so, you know, chicken and egg, we don't know yet. But we have to act as if it's there. We have to operate and assume that that, that 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 anxiety needs to be addressed and that there's something else going on that may be causing it that we want to look for and at least identify or rule out. Mm-hmm. And as a clinician, um, this is prompting me to think, okay, if I see a child and on their problem list it says ADHD, generalized anxiety disorder to stop and think, okay, is the anxiety secondary to just the ADHD 
usually it's more than that if you're getting to a separate anxiety diagnosis. Okay, is there something else that explains that anxiety? And mm-hmm. spectrum is probably one of the more common things because uh, I think as we learn and we clinicians identify more people on the spectrum, we're realizing there is a high co-occurrence rate. Um, and I had seen one yeah. figure that 10% of kids with ADHD are on the spectrum. Well, it's probably more than that, particularly the kind of the hidden, um, not very obvious until they get into uh, college, more complex social situations, um, and the same mm-hmm. the other way around. Um, yeah, no, I think I think you know part of what I'm I'm looking at is how do we how do we identify how do we clarify for providers what else could we be looking for that we might not be asking? You know, I think our rating scales for for parents are antiquated. And they're typically not designed for parents who also have complex issues themselves. Yeah. And, you know, most of these kids have parents with their own issues. And, you know, I know most of my parents are not going to take a 100-point scale, <laughs> you know, a 100-question rating no. scale. Like, we need to think in terms of how are we incorporating the complex adult into our diagnostic process. And, and I think some of that is going to not be in a rating scale, but it's going to be understanding more anecdotally and more experientially what questions should we be asking these parents that we haven't thought to ask in the past. That's mm-hmm. part of what I tried to identify in this article that was in Attention Magazine in, in August of 2022 about very complex kids is just to begin to raise this question of what could we be looking for that parents could help us with if we thought to ask? Yeah. Yeah, and so it's asking questions of the parents that suggest to the clinician, I have to look more toward the spectrum kinds of things. Um, And as kids get into adolescence and later, what questions to ask them. And this is anecdotal, read a description of a boy who was, asked, you know, what are you feeling now? And he said, well, I'm in the middle of feeling it. How can I tell you until it's, I felt it afterwards? And that was someone on the spectrum. He was trying to sort it out, but I can't tell you now what I'm feeling. Uh-huh. Uh, so the idea that, and I interrupt myself here, the Vanderbilt scale, which is a common one given to children mm-hmm. in the first 18 things are about ADHD and the next eight are about oppositional defiant disorder, which to me ought to be part of ADD. I've rarely seen someone diagnosed with just that who doesn't also have ADHD or perhaps on the spectrum. And so it, and it looks a little bit at a, anxiety, depression, so you can get some clues of what to look at. Um, but the, the questions on the ADHD are kind of reciting the symptoms from the DSM list. It's not asking, how does this show up? 
and that's where the the uh, asking parents a, from a different perspective and what parents see, um, and and that's the yeah. And this brings up one of my pet peeves. Yes, the clinician certainly can use some guidance and articles and uh, presentations at conferences and things, but the time to be able to listen is getting yeah. shorter or gone, in, certainly in primary care medicine. You've got 15 minutes to do this, and here's your diagnosis, bang. And instead of stepping back, and there isn't time to step back when as a pediatrician you're seeing 30 kids a day or a family physician you're seeing 25. You right. You have time to... Oh, you've got high blood pressure. We use this medicine. How's this doing? Bing, bing, bing. So the undifferentiated set of symptoms um, where one has to step back and look at that, the step back and look at it, time isn't there. And the right. listening for the subtle hints, you have to know a patient, a family, well enough to know Wait a sec, this this doesn't fit in. You've got smart kids. How come she's staying up till midnight every night and uh, can't do any other social interactions? Those are more subtle cues, but the time to reflect on it and and ask why is this happening to a parent? There isn't time for the clinician to do that. It's hurry up and and uh, get through it, at least in primary care medicine. There's too much emphasis. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's a serious problem we're facing um, because, you know, the, the, the many, many, probably most providers don't have the luxury of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is a sad reality. Some of it's because of the reimbursement structure because primary exactly. care isn't reimbursed as well, so the may, way you have primary care practices keep up, pay overhead, pay staff, pay themselves, is to see more people because there mm-hmm. are procedures. You, you don't get paid for taking an hour with a family and looking at, yes, a number of these various Scales which can give you a cue, they are clue. They aren't diagnostic, but they can give you some ideas where you go next. Um, so mm-hmm. that part is a complex, uh, complex deal. So I, yeah. I think when we look at um, where to put the emphasis, um, one is on parents and asking parents either a parent identifies something's not working or for the clinician to realize we've tried five different medicines and this child's still having meltdowns but they don't have the characteristics of more a bipolar disorder or really anger, mean anger kinds of things. Why is this child reacting this way and starting with the child. What's the child experience that this is happening? 
right. and not the, the surface. Um, I recall one boy, I think he was in third grade, and he got very frustrated during some writing uh, thing going on in school. Uh, may have been a spelling test, and he so frustrated that he couldn't get it that he threw his pencil down and it bounced on the floor and made a lot of noise. The teacher thought, oh, he's getting violent and shut down the classroom and evacuated everybody and this overreaction. The kid was upset at himself. He wasn't angry right. at himself. And he was expressing yeah. his frustration. Um, but it was read a whole completely different way. And parents, of course, weren't there, so they couldn't, really didn't have a way of understanding what the child was going through. He wasn't able to necessarily say, oh, I was frustrated, that's why I threw my pencil down. He just was reacting the way he felt. So that uh, yeah. sorting through the, the details on that um, is difficult. And yes, it's difficult for a teacher who has... 26, 28 kids. Um, and at yeah, it's overwhelming. 26 to 28 kids, there are going to be at least three that have ADHD. Much less all the other complexity. <laughs> so what are, what are we left with? What can parents do um, and what can clinicians do, what can teachers do uh, to realize that this is a complex kid with two or three, put it in the box, make a number on it for a diagnosis, but obviously it's all in one kid. How do you identify that it's the complexity is there, it's not just severe anxiety. It's not just ADHD. Mm, great question. I think there are a few things. The, the first thing I would say is whenever you've got a kid with any diagnosis, whether it's ADHD, anxiety, autism, the, one of the first-line treatments for that child besides medication is behavior training for the parent. Mm -hmm. And yet only about 30% of parents ever get a referral for behavior training. So yes, the first thing I would say to providers is make a referral to parent training. And I don't mean sign up for a website and get, take webinars. Parent training is much more in, interactive than that. Parent training requires that the parent be introduced to shifting expectations, that they get skills, that they get a chance to practice those skills with feedback from a professional, that they get access to a peer community. There are a lot of components that make a behavior training program effective and 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 what it is and whether you do that virtually we do it all virtually or whether you do that in person um, get encourage the parent to seek support because when a parent seeks support they're going to see whether their kid is an outlier or whether they're in concert with the other mm -hmm. with their peers they're going to begin to notice and be able to then come back to the provider and be a better reporter to the provider. If the parent is better educated, they will become a better colleague to the provider yes. in terms of improving nuances and diagnosis. And and this is that's the first thing I would say. One of the things, and it's been emphasized in literature on ADHD, particularly in kids under six, 
Mm -hmm. behavioral training, which isn't teaching the kid how to behave better, but it is. No, and it's not put the kid in therapy. Right. (laughs) And and yet the problem is the resources. Now, until there was more online, and this is helpful from COVID, if anything can be, um, that there's more acceptance of online ways to do clinical uh-huh. diagnosis, work with parents, and do whole group kinds of things. Um, so you and Diane are way in the forefront of doing that. Yeah, yeah, we've been doing it for eleven years. Yeah, but I, I we've think always that been virtual. Yeah. The key part you mentioned was support. Now that may start with uh-huh. going to a support group in uh, Chad or one of the other things, whether it's virtual or in person, but just a support group, not even the training coaching part. Well, I'm going to challenge you a little bit, David, because I think that there's a lot of support out there, but the support doesn't move you forward. It doesn't move the needle. No, but I'm saying that that can give the parent, number one, okay, I'm not just the only parent dealing with it. Yeah. Give them ideas of how is my child so different and then the clinician needs to some of those groups need to say parent training really helped me here are some resources mm-hmm. and the problem I've had is that resources uh, are few and far between or yeah here's the parent training thing and it's three o'clock in the afternoon well both parents probably aren't going to make that Oh, it's seven o'clock at night, so both parents can make it. Okay, you have three kids. Who's going to take care of them? While the right. Yes. Yeah. Are going to sit there in the traffic. I'm sure it's other places, but in Seattle, you have to start at five thirty <laughs> to get there. To get there, exactly. O'clock. Well, so you know, and this was my experience. Part of the reason I created Impact, what was then Impact ADHD, now Impact Parents was because two things happened. One, I couldn't make it to the monthly CHAD support group in Marietta when I live in the city. Mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't logistically, feasibly do it. And two, on the few times that I went, I would look around and I'd go, well, these aren't my people either because my kid is so different. Mm-hmm. And there was no indication. Like, I didn't fit in with the ADD kids, the parents of ADD mm-hmm. kids. I didn't fit in with the parents of dyslexic kids. I didn't fit in with any of those groups because my kid was in all of them, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so the support on the one hand, I guess, could have been helpful. I think it would be more now than it was then. But in some ways, it just made me feel worse because, yeah. you know, clearly something was really wrong if I didn't fit in there either. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I started talking in terms of complex kids and realizing how many of these kids have coexisting conditions. And as you said earlier, how few of them only have one condition. Mm-hmm. That gave me sort of freedom to begin to, to interpret it differently. But it wasn't truly, it wasn't until I started getting some skills in understanding them. So how, here's what I think parent training offers. Our job is to understand our kids well enough to learn to manage them and help them manage themselves so mm-hmm. that they can learn to become independent. And, and that's kind of the progression. 
So we have to understand them well enough, but then we have to really learn skills for management. We have to shift our expectations to meet them where they are and enroll them in their own process of self-management to get their engagement and their buy-in and their ownership. And that takes some nuance and that takes some skill and you have to learn yes. those skills. And meeting them where they are, I think is one of the absolute keys of that. Not saying, gee, you're, you're being disruptive or you're causing your mom and dad a lot of stress. But look, mm -hmm. what is, what's going on for the child? And of course, exactly. ask, why did you do that? I don't think the question why should be asked to any child that may have anxiety or anxiety. They don't know why. They just, that's the way their mind works. That's what they do. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm doing a workshop at the International Conference on ADHD on communication skills, and part of what I'm talking about is language. Mm -hmm. And one of my key terms for language is avoid the use of the word why. Because <laughs> yes. yeah. why and how are both trigger words. How are you going to? Well, if they knew how, they would be doing it. Yes. <laughs> they exactly. don't know how. Exactly. Why did? But we digress. Those are dead ends. Um, yeah. But it, so, this is where I think that the virtual coaching is a way that sure both parents may need a babysitter at seven o'clock at night, but that's easier than both parents having to go somewhere. Um, well, or when it's virtual, usually it's recorded. You know, so everything we do is mm -hmm. recorded so one parent can watch it live, another can watch it later, they can take turns, that kind of thing. Like and everybody, when we, our program, we have a behavior program called Sanity School, and we always, if they want it, we always give two logins. And we encourage mm -hmm. them not to do it together. <laughs> because they'll never do it. If they, if they wait yeah, to do it together, they'll never get together. it done. And but if they can do it on their own time, one while they're driving, you know, another while they're working out, then you can really help them move the needle. And the goal is to just make progress. It's just little bits at a time, step by step, to understand these kids better enough, well enough to learn to manage them and help them learn to manage themselves. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so for, for parents, for providers, referring parents to, to to get support and help before it becomes a crisis, before it becomes really severe. All kids with mm -hmm. a diagnosis, the parents should get some training. And then yeah. I think the other thing is for, for providers to pay attention when, when the kid, parent's coming back, when the parent is looking beleaguered, when the parent is losing sleep, when the parent is still asking six months later, when you see that worried look on their face, it, it, they're not just being difficult. There's a reason and it probably has to do with an underlying something else that we just haven't mm -hmm. identified yet that needs to be clarified. And that's starting and with the parents. Really, are. really taking that energy to, to, to pursue it. And it's hard because these kids are really complicated. Yes, yes. And it takes so much energy. Parents are tired and, and uh, frustrated. And a parent may have ADHD or anxiety issues. Certainly many of them I exactly. think, doubt whether they're doing well as parents because their kids are uh, having the problem. So understanding where the parent is as yeah. far as their discomfort and parents bring it up, okay, let's look at what may be behind that, not, gee, well, you must have personal history 
of problems and family of origin things, so you need therapy. No, they need understanding and coaching. Well, you know, when I was a parent in that stage and I was referred to therapy, and I did, I did go to therapy, and it wasn't that it wasn't helpful, it was. It just wasn't, a, it wasn't what I needed. What I needed was a Sherpa. <laughs> you know, I needed someone to guide me through this process and help me know what questions to ask and about school and about behavior and about medication. I needed, I needed wisdom and inform, not just information. I needed to know how to use the information that was out there. And, mm-hmm. and therapy helped me deal with the emotional stuff around how hard it was to have these complex kids and my own mm-hmm. complex issues and getting diagnosed as an adult. But it did not help me learn to manage these complex kids. It was yes. coaching that yeah. shifted the needle on that for me um, yeah, and, and which profoundly changed my way of being in the world. Definitely therapy. So, but that, I'm a coach, so, you know. <laughs> but I yeah. became a coach because it changed my life before I became a coach. Mm-hmm. And I knew it. I could help other parents by doing that. And, you know, so the, the essential guide, when I wrote that, that typical parenting book for p- kids who aren't so typical, it's actually about coaching skills. It's actually about teaching parents a different framework. You know, the medical model says these kids are broken. Let's fix them. And the coaching model says they're not broken. Here's what they got. Let's, let's help them learn how to navigate it. And with complex yeah. kids, you're dealing with chronic mental, chronic health conditions. You need to take that long-term marathon view. You got to support them in navigating themselves instead of just trying to fix it. And, and that's I, nuanced. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the to me one of the key parts of your book and your approach is yes, at age five and six and seven, parents have to be more involved in helping plan out one thing or another. The parent is the executive function and gradually introduce and give the responsibility to the child in doing those things so that by mm-hmm. age 18, they do have the self-management skills and they're doing things on their own. And, yeah, they get the responsibility and, oh, that didn't work out parents can support them in looking at, gee, let's look at a different way to do it instead of, well, you're set for college, good luck. And that's a, yeah. a disaster for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, uh, yeah. I think we could probably talk for another two or three hours. Um, but we've, uh, Let's postpone that to another time and wrap this yeah. one up. <laughs> to be continued. And then I, I would like to do that in terms of a month from now, let's look at what other things have come up for clinicians, for parents, for coaches, as far as more knowledge in, in this area. So listeners, I, I know we've talked about a lot of complex issues here, complex kids, complex parents, um, and the keys are if it's a parent it just isn't working. It seems like, great, I'm glad to know about this diagnosis, but we aren't, some things are still really disruptive to family or taking a lot more energy than you think it should. A clinician, if you wonder how come we aren't, it's not working as well. 
and realize your child isn't going to be able to identify that as a specific, oh, maybe I have this problem. But they are going to say, I can't make friends. I don't know why I lose friends all the time. That's not just ADHD. It can be some, but it's not only that. So those are are clues to look somewhere else. Exactly. My guest today has been Elaine Taylor-Klaus, who's the founder of Impact Parents, online virtual parent coaching groups. He's written three books and the latest one, Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids, really does put together a lot of things she's learned and thought about and worked with over a number of years. Her website is impactparents.com and I will have that website and the titles of her book in the information on the podcast. Elaine, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure to discuss things with you. Hi, thanks for having me, David. It's always a pleasure for me as well. I really enjoyed the opportunity. And and I just want to remind people listening that, that one step at a time, progress over perfection, we can make a difference. Mm-hmm. One step at a time. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for listening. And tune in next time. Listen and learn. And I'll be glad to talk again about things in the next show. This is your host, David Pomeroy host of ADHD Focus. So long.